Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 85 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a juggernaut who has enjoyed success across multiple avenues of entertainment, including but not limited to television, comic books, and best-selling works of both fiction and non-fiction, alongside a celebrated career as a children's author. He has just released the two latest titles in the Ordinary People Change the World series, which is a big hit in the bedroom in which I am currently sitting, entitled I Am Anne Frank and I Am Benjamin Franklin. Hello and welcome, Brad Meltzer. You win best set by far. Um, although you know what every narcissist author is doing that you interview is looking to see if it's their book that's on the shelf behind you. Oh my goodness, I didn't even think of that. You have 35 oh, no, different titles. Thank you for crushing my soul at moment. No, I appreciate it. I swear they're everywhere else you can't see right now. Littered with them is this room, Brad. Um, I was aware of your career leading up to this interview in pieces. I've seen your novels and your nonfiction stuff in bookstores, and I've been reading your children's book to my son, I swear, for years without putting together that it was all the same guy. How much of your career is happenstance or being opportunistic and how much of the varied pursuits that you've had were part of a carefully executed master plan? You know, uh, I think, although I may look like Lex Luthor, uh, I don't think carefully executed master plan is in my, my DNA. Um, what has always happened is I just work on what I like to work on and then pray it works. When I, when I, I started writing thrillers, murdering people all day long, writing murder mysteries. Um, that is hardly the best segue to children's books, but what happened was I had kids. And when I had kids, I went to my editor and I said, I wanna write a book for kids. And, and I, said, I, I said, listen, I know a lot of authors come to you and say, oh, I wanna do a children's book. And I, I had a son, I, when, I'll tell you, this is a better way to explain it. On the day that I was born, my father bought a bottle of champagne. And he said, I'm gonna open up this bottle of champagne when my son gets married. And I remember we moved from uh, Florida. My dad lost his job. We moved down from New York to Florida. And, you know, you put all your stuff in the car and that's your stuff. But you take those things that you don't trust the movers that you keep with you. And that's not just your stuff. That's like your life. And I remember it was myself and my sister in the back seat, my mom and dad in the front seat and behind us, two headrests in the back with two bottles of champagne that used to roll back and forth in the Florida sun. My parents knew nothing about taking care of champagne. Clearly. When my son was born, I said, you know what? I want to, I don't care about champagne. I, I care about books and I'm going to write a book for him that lasts his whole life, that he'll have his whole life. And I filled it with rules for him to live by, to be a good person. And the book was garbage. It was like telling your kid be good and expecting him to be good. And then a friend of mine, Simon Sinek told me this amazing story about the Wright brothers, that every time the Wright brothers went out to fly their plane, they would bring enough extra materials for multiple crashes which means every time they went out, they knew they would fail. And they would crash and rebuild and crash and rebuild, and that's why they took off. And I love that story. I wanted my sons to hear that story. I wanted my daughter to hear that story. I wanted everyone to know you dream big, you work hard, you have a good side order of stubbornness, you can do anything in the world. 
And so I said, that's the book I want to write, a book of not rules, but a book of heroes. Heroes for my son, I called it. And I went to my publisher. I said, I know you get you know, thriller writers who write books for their kids, and then they want you to publish them. I'm like, if you don't like it, don't publish the book. I don't want you to have to service something you don't like. And they said, okay, good, thank you. We don't like the book. And I was like, what do you mean you don't like the book? It's spectacular. I wrote something spectacular. <laughs> I didn't um, mean that. And I, right, I said that to be nice. It wasn't <laughs> true. And the reality was, is uh, I went to another publisher. It got rejected and I went to a new publisher and the book shot up the bestseller list. And everyone said, how'd you do that? It had, an, it had a marketing budget of $0. Zero. And, you know, when we do our thrillers, they come out like, like they're invasions of small countries. But the kids' books, they were like, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. Let's just do it. And I said, it wasn't me, right? It, it was that people wanted these stories about Rosa Parks and the Wright brothers and Amelia Earhart and Abraham Lincoln. And as a parent, I wanted that for my kids. And that's where my, I, it wasn't an executed master plan. It was just that like I had kids and wanted to give my son something. Although I will tell you that on the day that I did get married, we did open up the bottle of champagne. We toasted and drank with it. It was the foulest, nastiest glass of champagne I ever had in my life, but also the greatest glass of champagne. I ever had in my life. At least the bottle made it and the cork. Bottle made it. So I'm interested. I have been reading the two new books to my son the last couple of nights. The the sort of book that you're talking about, writing rules for life, etc., sounds quite a bit like what Benjamin Franklin did for himself. Is this latest book uh, a reflection of a lifelong interest in him? No, you know what what uh, you're uh, really my myself. I think more than anything else, what happened was is I just I started wanting to write more for my kids. And I was tired of my kids. I wanted to give them better heroes to look up to, heroes of, who could teach them compassion and kindness and, and character, that thing that's been lost today. And I went and told my daughter, I'm like, listen, I said to my daughter, she was, I think, you know, six, seven years old at the time. I said, Amelia Earhart is amazing. She flew across the Atlantic Ocean. And my daughter was like, big deal, dad. Everyone flies across the Atlantic Ocean. She was so not impressed. But I told her this true story that when Amelia Earhart was seven years old, she built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard. She took a wooden crate, she put roller skating wheels on the bottom, she shoved it to the roof of her tool shed, put two pieces of wood, came flying down the side, flies through the air, crashes, gets up and says, that's incredible, whatever she yells at the time. Um, and my daughter's like, tell me that story again. And that was suddenly where the kind of light bulb went off and I said, I'm gonna write books about each of these heroes and show you them when they're kids. And that led to this series you see, so unobviously placed behind me, but um, The Ordinary People Change the World series. We did I Am Abraham Lincoln, I Am Rosa Parks, I Am Albert Einstein. My son loves sports, but I was like, forget millionaire athletes. Here, meet this guy, uh, Jackie Robinson, right? I was like, that's a great hero for you. And this amazing thing happened that we could have never anticipated in the 2016 election, as it was approaching, Hillary and Donald Trump are fighting every day on the TV, screaming at each other. Two of our books started selling more than any others. And they were I Am Martin Luther King Jr. and I Am George Washington. And it wasn't even a Democrat or Republican thing. It was that parents and grandparents on both sides were tired of turning on the TV and seeing politicians. What they wanted to show their kids were leaders. And we all know there's a huge difference between a politician and a leader. And I love the fact that people use our books to fight back against the cynicism they see and use our books to build libraries of real heroes for their kids and grandkids. I, I mean, I certainly love Ben Franklin, um, but I don't, I, I wish I was more conscious of these things. I think I kind of stumble into them and just find what I love and then just keep trying to do it. 
honestly, in my experience, um, I, I'm, I'm not trying to humble brag, but I'm, I'm about to. My son took an interest in the Martin Luther King uh, book, the Rosa Parks book, the Jackie Robinson book, and all of that was before everything that happened over the summer with George Floyd and protests. And I, I thank you because it really did inform the way that he understood it to the extent that an eight and a half year old can understand what's happening in the larger world. I think he already did have a context for understanding why something that happened to one person could have ramifications for all of us. I don't really have a question there, but th- no, that no, is- but, that, but that's but that's you just did the hard thing, right? It's easy to be like, oh, I want to give my kid a kid that you know, here's Abraham Lincoln, right? But to give your like, I, the better example I can tell you is we have a dear friend. Um, he's white, his daughter's black, adopted mixed race family. They were reading I Am Rosa Parks together for the first time. This is years ago. She was six, seven, eight years old. And we always, we have this cute, adorable, you know, Chris Eliopoulos, our amazing artist, um, has this art style that's like Charlie Brown meets Calvin Hobbes. And that's why kids love it. Truthfully, it's not my writing. It's Chris's beautiful art. And that's the way they get into them. But we always put a real picture of the real hero as the last page of the book. And my friend is reading with his daughter, again, mixed race family, and they're reading through and they get to the last page and they see Rosa Parks, a real picture. And his daughter says to him, wait, this really happened. This really happened. And he said, and suddenly he was having a full on conversation about race, which of course he said, I should have had years earlier. We're a mixed race family, but I was too scared. I don't want to mess it up. Race is a hard issue. You don't want to do it you know, incorrectly. You have good intentions, but you don't know how. And I, I never could have planned that for the book, but to watch kids now have these discussions with our books. My, my niece last night, the book came out yesterday, right? I Am Frank is the newest one. And my sister calls me uh, last night and she had just gotten the book delivered. It just came out. My niece is six years old. I'm like, how'd I do? And she's like, I just had an hour long conversation about the Holocaust with my daughter that was age appropriate and amazing. And I could feel this resilience building in her. And, um, and obviously that's our goal, but to watch it realized with people that give this to their kids is, is the most humbling thing that we do. I, I, we never anticipated any of that. We just wanted to tell a good story to our own kids. Why Anne Frank and why now? Yeah, I mean, and, and we should talk about that for Ben Franklin too. I mean, what, what eventually happened with the series, you know, we did I Am Walt Disney and we, you know, for my creative son, because I wanted him to show what you could do with your creativity. I did, I am Jane Goodall for my daughter who loves our dog, because I wanted her to see what you could do with something you love. Like Jane Goodall loved animals. Look what you can do when you, when you put the thing you love into, into full effect. But Anne Frank was a response to where we were as a culture. Um, you know, look around, the world's on fire. And anti-Semitism's at a 40 year high. The study just came out, I'm not sure if you saw, but that millennials barely know basic facts about the Holocaust. Our kids need hope right now. The world's a scary place, they need hope. And Anne Frank to me is the best way to teach it. The little girl who hid from the Nazis in an attic, but yet still believed that people were good at heart. And I want my kids to have that lesson that even in the darkest of places, you can always find the light because that's what hope is. It's this light that burns within you. And when you turn it on, nothing turns it off. And that's why I picked Anne Frank. I was like, how do I look around and say, what do I want for my kids right now? And I need to teach it. And I have this opportunity to do it. So it's, it's really selfish of me, but hopefully it brings some good out in the universe. Brad, I've sort of observed in watching, for example, like new movies with my kids and then exposing them to some of the movies that we loved when I was a kid, that stuff that 
maybe wouldn't be in a PG-13 movie nowadays might well be in a PG movie like The Goonies, for example, from, sure. you know, 20, 30 years ago. You deal with tricky subjects in the book at times, especially when it's people involving issues of race, and that involves dealing with harsh realities. For example, in the Harriet Tubman book, you depict, in a, in a children's book, the the brutality that slaves often endured. How do you know where to set the line of how far you can take kids to let them know what we're really talking about without obviously going unnecessarily far and scaring them. No, and listen, it's, we're still trying to figure it out. I wish we had the magic, you know, we, we weighed this much violence with this much, you know. Um, when we did the first two books, when we did I Am Abraham Lincoln, the editor said, you sure you want to do slavery? You want to show that? And I was like, if we don't show slavery, what are we doing? That's the whole point. And we did it in a very sensitive way. We obviously, we never do it ourselves. We always go get help. Um, we had the best biographers wrote the, the best Harriet Tubman biographies help us with that book. With Anne Frank, I went to the Holocaust Memorial, um, of course, and they gave us an advisor to work with, a historian that they recommended. We went to the Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect. When we did I Am Jane Goodall and I Am Billie Jean King, Jane Goodall and Billie Jean King read their books. When we did I Am Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis was the advisor on the book and read the early copy. And each time, you know, I experiment on my own kids. I look and see how they react. I mean, I feel like in some ways I had kids as like free focus groups, but like that's what they do and they help me. And I see where that line is. Um, but it was very important to me to not shy away from that. And it, it's funny, it reminds me of this. I think my favorite story in the Anne Frank book is when she's in the attic she used to have a, a tiny little window, one window she could see out of. And the view from the attic was this chestnut tree. And she couldn't go near the window and look at the street because otherwise people could see her. So she just stayed back, stared at this tree as her only view. In the winter, she'd watch the leaves fall off the tree. In the spring, she'd watch them come back. This is her YouTube. This is her Netflix. This is her phone. It's this tree. Radio and on the weekends and the tree. Right. That's, that's what you get, right? I mean, and, and she, basically she dies. They preserve the house, turn it into a museum. They try to preserve the tree, which they do until 2010 when the tree is blown over. But here's what happens is they took the saplings from the tree and started planting them around the world. And today there are trees planted all over the globe, Anne Frank trees that are blooming more beautifully than ever. And in my craziest dreams, that's what I hope those scenes are that you're talking about is their seeds that you put into your kids and you show them to your kids. And when you share them, you know, if you put your kids in bubble wrap, you do them no favors. When you share these moments, uh, your kids get a resilience that otherwise wasn't there. And your kid gets part of Anne Frank's life in them and they become a part of Anne Frank's story as well. And, and that seed blooms. So, you know, we'll find out if I scarred a lot of kids in, a, in 10 years or not, we'll see what the therapy bills are, but, we try with a real sensitivity to see how we get there and we try not to shy away. We show, in fact, every book we always show, I don't, I don't want to ever whitewash history and make it like everyone's great and we all did it terrific. We show you Abraham Lincoln losing eight elections. We show you George Washington losing his first election. You see Anne Frank, obviously the Holocaust. I mean, I think if you show kids these things, they'll always be stronger than you think they are. Well, and you make the point in the book, there's only so many words, only so many points you can make in a children's book. I notice you do point out that the U.S. had the opportunity to accept Jewish refugees. That's not always one of the major bullet points of the Anne Frank no, story as it's accident. presented. As it's, and I'm, I have no doubt in my mind, you got to pick your spots. You only have so many panels. And 
it doesn't make you an America hater. I, I sense that you love America more than most, but loving America is reckoning with our, our just as being a human being is reckoning with our own failures that we might fix them moving forward. Listen, there are millions of kids right now being taught that immigrants are bad. That's what they're being taught, right? Those people are coming for your stuff. Um, forgetting about the fact that unless you're Native American, every single person here is an immigrant. We all come from immigrants. And again, not you know, we're, we have such fear mongering in America today that like it must be like, oh, then you're for open borders. You want everyone to come take it. It's like, no, no, there, there's obviously there were never open borders, even back then that, you, you know, we, we did these things. But it's important to me to use this moment and say Anne Frank's family did try to come here. They were immigrants. If you love Anne Frank and you love what they stood for, then you should be standing on their side. And you didn't. It's the same thing with Dr. King. I looked up and found this story um, that at the time of the great march on Washington, that everyone on every side says, oh, we love Dr. King. He's our favorite. We stand with the march on Washington. Only like 35% of Americans were actually in favor of the march on Washington. The majority of Americans stood against it. They thought it was too radical of an idea. Get all those black people together. Only bad things are going to happen, they were saying. And that's absurd. And we need to make kids realize, even what they're, if they're being taught hate, that we have this opportunity to teach them something better. Um, so we, we pick our fights where we can. Um, and it's the same thing in I Am Ben Franklin. I mean, Ben Franklin was written, you can see in the book, I listen, I love the kite, I love the electricity, and that's wonderful. And we all know that story, and you'll see it in there. But I love the fact that we get to show Benjamin Franklin standing for uh, the value of the free press, that he ran his own newspaper and he didn't just publish his ideas, he published the opposite side's ideas. And used to say that if you just follow your own side, you're not informed about an argument. Like the people who say they know everything, that's not a smart person. The smart people know what they don't know and that there's plenty they don't know. And I want my kids to know that. And Ben Franklin also stood for the idea, his greatest experiment was on himself, making himself a better person every day. He had rules for it to happen. He said, one, be frugal. Don't spend your money if you, you know, on things you don't need. Two, tell the truth. Three, work hard. And four, don't speak badly about other people. And look where the world is today. We spend so much time pointing. Those people did this and this one is doing that to me. And there are fights that are worth picking, right? White supremacy and Anne Frank, those are fights worth picking. But we spend so much time blaming other people for problems that I want my kids to learn that if you want to change the world, start by changing yourself. That's the best way to do it. Be better than what angers you. Be better. Um, and Ben Franklin was the reason I pulled him out for that. Those two lessons that I could give my kids. I definitely get the sense that you're a, a man on a, a larger mission. And obviously that has a lot to do with the role that parenthood plays in your life. I watched your TEDx talk, write your own obituary. I know that you're a comic book guy. It's tempting for me to think that you are seeing the world through a sort of superhero origin story lens that all um, of us. Are I, it's not, I mean, that is, and I think there are good things and bad things about that, but that is how I see, I mean, listen, I grew up on comic books. I, I write comic books. I write Superman and Spider-Man and Batman. And, and as you saw in that talk with my, you know, my favorite part of the story is not Superman. The most important part of the story has never been Superman. It's Clark Kent because we're all Clark Kent and we're all boring and ordinary and wish we could do something amazingly beyond ourselves. Um, and I think that we do make the mistake of taking superheroes and seeing the world in black and white. Those of us who love superheroes love the world in black and white. There's good guys, there's bad guys, and you got to fight back. And 
And I think when I was younger, that's how I like to see it. Anyone on the other side was the bad guy. We were the good guys, right? And um, I think as I see it now, I, I again, I associate far more with Peter Parker and Clark Kent than I do with probably the Superman and the Spider-Man part, um, because I love the idea that we're all kind of also failing all the time. I love the fact that we're all brave and we're all scared and we're all amazing and we're all terrified and we're all wonderful and we're all horrible and then we're all incredible. And like sometimes in the same week, sometimes in the same day, sometimes in the same hour, depending on when you catch us, but that's not the flaw of humanity. That's the proof of humanity. And, and I think, you know, it's important to me why in every book, if I cared that much about just the superhero part, then everything would be rosy. And, and Abraham Lincoln would be the greatest president who ever lived and never did a thing wrong and nothing ever bad happened. But we spend so much time in every book, at least, you know, a couple pages showing you their failures. Um, because to me, it's like the Walt Disney book we did. Like, you know, Walt Disney, the first Mickey cartoon doesn't sell. His first business, they tell him he's going to have to declare bankruptcy. He's sleeping in a bus station. That's the more important part of the story. I don't care about all the marketing and what Disney brings. I care about the failures because when you teach your kid to fail and get back up again, that's how you teach him to fly. How do you feel that your success blossomed? Because I feel like the kind of origin story that you're talking about for the people who are in the I Am books is kind of similar to your own. I know that you did, were not able to sell your first book right off the bat. You don't strike me as somebody who feels that you were born destined for greatness. And yet you, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you know, with all humility aside, you've accomplished and continue to accomplish great things. What do you think is the the flashpoint that allows you to blossom? Uh, gosh, I appreciate you asking that. Um, you know, my family, we got our butts kicked a lot when, when I was growing up. I'm the, you know, my dad lost his job at 39 years old and, and he called it the do-over of life. Um, as if that was, you know, he was going to start his life over from scratch. He had $1,200 to his name had no job, no place to live. And it wasn't one of those moments where we were just scared about money. We were scared about safety. I mean, we don't have a place to live. And, um, and I actually think that any humility I, I have comes from that moment. It, it's just, you, you know, when, when life kicks you in the teeth, you know, if you can make the comeback, you either think I'm the best and I'm great, or you, I think in my way, I'm just terrified to lose it all again. I watched my whole life disappear in one day. And to this day, it's still my greatest fear to this moment. I can tell you this, this will be the most revealing thing I can tell you. So I got 24 rejection letters on my first book, as you mentioned. Uh, there were only 20 publishers at the time. I got 24 rejections. It's hard and, to do. But, but the, I had out, you know, I have to, right? You got to do it. Um, but the 23rd and 24th were actually supposed to be acceptance letters. They told me that the first 22 were clear rejections, but they said 23 and 24, they liked the book. And I actually met with them. I went to New York, I had big meetings and it was like a big deal to me. And I was in debt from college at the time and in debt from law school at the time. So I'm just trying to dig out of debt. I'm the first of my family to go to a four-year college. I got out, which was a miracle. And my agent told me at the time, wait by the phone. I'm going to tell you there's going to be a bidding war. You're going to make some money. We're going to get you out of debt. So I raced by the phone, pre-cell phone. So you had to like wait by the phone truly. And I pick up the phone all excited to hear the good news. And my agent says, I'll never forget, I pick up waiting to tell me how wealthy we're going to be. And she says, sorry, kiddo. And my heart just sinks. And to this day, every day that I sit down to write for 20 years now, I replay that moment. We all have our rituals. This is mine. I literally picture the room I was in, the phone I was holding was one of those clear see-through ones where you could see the wires running through it. It was like sure. at the time. On my left is this Formica desk. On my 
right is this bed in a box spring, no headboard or anything fancy. I look out over this terrace over on this concrete parking lot. I, there's a fire station across the street with three doors that I count in my head, one, two, three. And then I say those words, sorry, kiddo. And to me, I never, ever want to think I made it. I never want to be as anything but as hungry as I was when I was 24 years old. I never, ever want to think that, uh, you know, that I, I've accomplished the anything great because then what do I, what mountains do I have left to climb? I never want to ever, ever think it's done because then I'm finished. And for 20 plus years now, every single day that I sit down to write, I say it, sorry, kiddo, sorry, kiddo, sorry, kiddo. Um, and that is to me, it keeps me grounded and, and thankful for this life that I've been lucky to have. And, and it's, I know it's also my fear of losing it all in a day, which I watched I can't tell you how many times in my life uh, over and over. I understand that you, and if this is true, you'd probably be the only person on earth this applies to have received fan mail from both Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. I'm just so curious to know what, what did they say? Yeah. So I, yes, I got fan mail. That was the craziest fan mail. Um, Clinton had written me a letter while he was president and George Bush wrote me one after he had left. And, the truth was, I thought it was fake. I knew the Clinton one was coming because someone knew him and they'd said, oh, I gave him your book and he reads mysteries. So they had written a letter and I knew it was real. It was on White House stationery. But the, the George Bush one came, I totally thought it was fake. I, th I said, oh, some staffer is, is using the pen signing machine to write to me. Because when I, when I was a staffer on Capitol Hill, my first internship ever, we used to take the pen signing machine and I would take the stationery and I would write to my friends and tell them they were being deported. And it was like, <laughs> like, I love that. That was a great bit. And so I thought, oh, someone's doing that to me. And so I called the office. I said, hey, someone in President Bush's, they, they, they requested a, a signed copy. I'm like, someone there wants a signed copy. I want to make sure I get the address right. And they go, oh, you got the president's letter. I'm like, what? And I wound up meeting George Bush and becoming actually dear friends with him. Um, I was actually, in fact, I, you know, I was... I couldn't tell the story then, but um, when George Bush was sick and obviously passed away last year, um, what no one knew and I could never tell is that on his deathbed, um, well, it wasn't his deathbed yet, but at, right before he died, they were bringing in some of his favorite writers to read to him. And I got the call and they asked me to come to Kennebunkport. I was actually in Kennebunkport at the time. They had me come over to the, to the compound and we know what's happening at this point. We know he's sick. Um, we know this is the end. The Secret Service says he's going to be awake for like five minutes and he's going to fall asleep. He's just sleeping most of the day now. And so I'm like, okay, I'll read a chapter and it'll be great. I'm honored to be here. And, it's, and the Secret Service leaves the room. It's my wife, myself, President Bush, and his service dog, Sully. And this is it. We know it's over. And he's got a stack of books on his desk. And one of them is my book called The First Conspiracy about a secret plot to kill George Washington. That really happened. It was a nonfiction book I did. And... I'm reading to him and sure enough, he falls asleep in five minutes, but I'm like, I'll finish the chapter. And the chapter I brought was when George Washington presents for the very first time, has the Declaration of Independence read to his troops for the first time. And I get to those words, those words we all know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And President Bush's eyes pop open and he's locked on me. And he can't even speak at this point. He just says, mm-hmm, or uh-uh. He can't even put words together. And I say, sir, you want to read another chapter? Mm-hmm. I read another chapter. We get to the end of the day. You want to read another, sir? Mm-hmm. And another. And another. And instead of being there for five minutes or 10 minutes, I'm there for an hour. And I leave 
there and I say goodbye to him. I know I'm never going to see him again. And I thank him for what he's done for me. Um, and we did a lot of work, you know, like bipartisan work for literacy. It takes Democrats, Republicans, brings them together, and we do work for literacy. And I was at his funeral. They invited us to his funeral. And the word that kept being used over and over at his funeral was this one word, decency. Decency. This thing that's lost in politics today, and certainly with our current leaders, right? I mean, decency is on, you know, that's in the trash. Um, but I think the reason why our books have connected, I hope, with people, the reason why they like, whether it's Weatherman now, like Neil Armstrong, or last year, the big, think of the big um, biography series, Mr. Rogers, Neil Armstrong. The reason those are popular is because the world is starving for decency right now, starving for good heroes like Ben Franklin, right? Like, that's, again, I can't do it. How did the Weatherman do it? Like Ben Franklin. Um, it's hard to know which shoulder to point over. I know, I can't do it. It's, I'm bad at it. But to me, that decency, we have to fight for it if you want it back. And, and uh, so, Pan, long-winded answer to your question, but it was a mind-blowing experience. I have to let you go. I've already kept you uh, too long. Uh, Brad, you are a source of good in the world, and we definitely could use as many of those as we can get these days. The latest entries in the Ordinary People Change the World series are I Am Anne Frank and I Am Benjamin Franklin, available now. Thank you so much for your time, Brad Meltzer. Thanks for doing this and for all you do, and I love the room, by the way. Thank you, thank you. I've worked pretty hard on it. I'm pretty proud of it. Pretty clear. (laughs) Take care. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Tully Show. More to come with 2020 NBA Head Coach of the Year and now author Nick Nurse after this. Welcome back to The Tully Show. Joining me now, head coach of the 2019 NBA champion Toronto Raptors, the 2020 NBA Coach of the Year, and author of the just-released book, Rapture, 15 years, four countries, one NBA championship, and how to find a way to win damn near anywhere. Hello, and welcome, Nick Nurse. Hi, thanks for having me on. How are you today? I'm terrific, thanks. NBA uh, champion, head coach of the year. Congratulations on that. Does it still feel a little surreal to hear those words uh, applied to yourself? <laughs> it's a, a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bit. You just um, kind of got to roll with it though, right? Get out of bed and get to work every morning, just like you were doing uh, the first 27, 28 years of your coaching life. The the season will always be remembered for the bubble. I'm so curious. I'm always fascinated by the minutia of life in weird circumstances like that. Particularly, I was wondering, other than obviously getting back to your own bed and seeing your your family and your wife, what was the one thing that you were specifically looking forward to doing as soon as you got out of the bubble? Well, it was just the freedom to move around. You know, I mean, it's not like we're doing a lot of moving around anyway, but just to maybe get in your car and take a drive, you know, we're really contained there, you know, in a, in a room down to practice over to an arena, back to the room, lots of time in the room over and over and over. It was, yeah. it was like uh, an intense college dorm room situation where, where, you're, you know, you weren't hanging out too much. Uh, you were just in the room a lot. Basketball wise, it seemed to me that it might have its advantages in the NBA circles. They're always bemoaning all the travel, the lack of practice time. Obviously, there's distractions for players, distraction for for coaches. Did you find actually that you were able to focus a little bit more on the business of being a basketball team, having little else to do in there? Yeah, the basketball setup was was amazing. It really was from from really a lot of things you mentioned, but from a rest and recovery standpoint, I mean, literally, like, here's a difference. You know, if I'm going to go to practice at the uh, 
OVO Athletic Center. I'm going to drive, sit in traffic, go in, you know, whatever. And here we were, walk down the hall, get on the elevator, walk five minutes indoors, and we were in the gym, you know. So that's pretty convenient and eliminates a lot of um, outside noise, a lot of time, you know. There was so a lot of the time yeah. you could rest, recuperate, get your body right, you know, et cetera. Disruption creates opportunity. People have been talking for a long time about having like a play-in tournament for an eighth seed, and there was finally a reason to do that. Do you want to see something like that continue? Are you hearing that something like that might be able to continue because it had to sort of happen this time around? Well, I'm a I'm a big fan of of keeping interest, keeping teams interested in their season keeping fans of teams interested in their season. I kind of like baseball went to eight teams this year, you know, again, because of the, you know, I think keeping teams fighting and the regular season games having more meaning all the way down to the end, I think is always important. I liked it. I don't know if it's going to continue, but I liked it. And I liked it in baseball too. So that's just me. Your book chronicles your long rise to NBA coach at times somewhat uh, unglamorous. I was wondering, I, there's a number of instances in England for some reason where you're, you seem to be involved in the financial side of the team way more than a head coach would ever be. What stands out to you as the most humble or humbling moment of your pre NBA coaching career? Well, you know, to touch on that a little bit, it's, there's not a whole lot of um, basketball teams around the world that are, churning out huge profits like they do in the NBA. In fact, outside of the N the NBA is about the only league that's doing that. And there's a lot of turnover. You know, you've all heard the stories about players going over, not getting paid and teams folding and all this stuff in, in a number of sports overseas. So I think that you got to, every now and then you got to understand how, how blessed you are to be in such a, such a league that, that everybody cares about. And it's so well financed and structured as the NBA. Again, I like going back to some of your bubbles thing. I think it was incredible what the NBA did, how safe, how awesome, how great the games were uh, getting it done under, under really difficult circumstances. So I think um, just blessed to be part of such a good league and looking back with fond memories of struggling through some of those leagues that weren't so so well backed. You crossed paths with Dennis Rodman in a coaching capacity in England. Yeah. I was not aware yeah, of that. Yeah, he was on um, Celebrity Big Brother back when those were rolling. And there's only about 40 million people a night watching that in England. And he came out of the house and he was really popular over there with just the every, you know everybody that watched the show. And our team decided to sign him and the the big sponsor of the team wanted to do it. And uh, it was really fun, really interesting. Uh, great guy, seriously, big hearted guy was, was entertaining as you would expect was a great player as you would expect and just fun to be around and create, created a lot of excitement there for three games. He played three games for us. It seemed like when he finally showed up, he was ready to, at least mentally, to play basketball for whatever minutes you had for him, right? It was right? unbelievable. Seriously, it was, it was really amazing. He, he, he was late to the game. They pushed it back. It was, it was 100 and almost 100, and I think 189 press credentials released for the game, which versus three for a normal British basketball game. You know, seriously. So, <laughs> so um, uh, it took like six bodyguards to get him out of the car and into the arena. There were so many people outside waiting to see him, catch a glimpse, snap a photo. 
Um, and then he, he comes into the, the, the changing rooms and says, Hey, I don't want to start, you know, start your normal guys. I'll come off the bench. And he comes off the bench. The place is going bonkers. He, he flashes into the high post, catches the ball, drops off a backdoor pass for a layup. The very next possession on the defensive end, he takes a charge and the place is like, like going again, going bonkers and, and sacrifices his body fresh uh, off of somebody's big brother. Just instinct, right? His his instincts were right. so uh, for for player just the same, you know. And it just just took over. Even like you mentioned, he was forty four years old, probably hadn't played a game in ages, uh, and um, it was fun. In the book, you talk about how the NBA is different from every other level of basketball in which the the players don't have to impress the coach. The coach really has to make an impression on the players. I wonder, are there any specific moments you remember either as an assistant or as a head coach where you felt like you could feel yourself getting over with these guys, that you weren't this guy from the D-League, you were this guy who had their ear? Well, I think that I can certainly remember my very first time as an assistant coach walking up there and, and whether it was imagined or real to me, I, I, I kind of felt that the sense of the room was, was the body language was like, who in the hell is this minor league guy coming up here, trying to get us ready for this next game? You know, it was my scout, you know, preparing us for, you know, playing the Milwaukee Bucks and, and you could almost feel the non paying attention, the non interest, <laughs> the whatever. And then, and then, you know, and it isn't an immediate thing. You know, you hope you put a good game plan out. You think you walk out of that thinking that, okay, they they, they sat up and you got their attention and, and they're going to go out there and execute. But I think that that starts to build up like, okay, this guy might know what he's doing and, and the relationship starts to grow, but it takes some time. Did you feel like you had to sell yourself all over again to Kawhi Leonard when he showed up? You didn't really have a, a player of quite that superstar level when you took over, well, when you, when you yeah. joined as an assistant. Listen, I, I almost think that you almost do that every year, right? And every year, uh, certainly, it's a really good question by you. Certainly, um, um, Kawhi was, didn't know him. I, he didn't know me and, and certainly like was almost in a state of semi um, – well, he was an upheaval. He didn't really realize how he ended up in Toronto and why he was here. And I think everything was different for him. And uh, what mattered to him was was basketball. And I was going to be a part of that. So certainly was a long, long process of getting to know each other and getting to trust each other. I mean, I trusted him. I, I saw how good he was in about the first half of our first preseason game and, and, um, and probably already had that assumption already. But I think his growing – Trust in his teammates and in our coaching staff probably took took some time, but we got there. We got there. Realistically, looking back, do you think Masai Ujiri replaces Dwayne Casey with you if he knows he's going to get Kawhi Leonard? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's not a conversation you would ever have, obviously. No. I, I mean, listen, I thought I, thought I was going to be a head coach. Uh, mm-hmm. that coming That's clear throughout the book. Yeah, right. I, was, I thought I was going to be a head coach uh, that coming season. Toronto was really the last place I thought that was going to happen. I thought my days in Toronto were over. Um, I was talking to several other teams who had coaching openings, and uh, was you know was pretty shocked that that uh, they did decide to make the move, and then probably even more surprised they elevated me. But, but um, you know, I kind of said in the book as well. I wanted to be ready if I was ever given a shot. And uh, hopefully those 27 years I put in leading to that moment were, were getting me ready. 
to touch on something a little bit heavier, as everyone knows, the NBA, and in particular this season, has been focused quite a bit on issues of social justice and civil rights, and coaches like yourself have been front and center in supporting the players. As everyone knows, the majority of the players in the league are non-white, whereas people in leadership and ownership positions are not. And different leagues have tried to address this disparity different ways. The NFL has had the Rooney rule, and you end up with, in some cases, candidates who know that they're interviewing for a job that they are not are never going to get. Practically speaking, what can the league do to level the playing field for black head coaching candidates to address that disparity? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think my first response is I don't think we should be put in a silo. I mean, you can look at everything. You can look at Academy Awards or, you know, I mean, there's a there's a lot of things that 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 are way behind where they should be. Um, but that doesn't make it right. I mean, listen, my ideas are this and I I tell my my players that I consider that uh, two top priorities of my job are this one is to um impress upon you how important it is you make an impact in your local communities, right? I, I'm either by starting a foundation or charitable giving or getting in the communities and being mentors to these kids or even just heroes to them, you know, where you can show them through hard work and ed- dedication that, that, that they can achieve something. And secondly, uh, and closely more related to your question is, I want to get these guys ready for their careers, Um in basketball, because that's my expertise, whether it's a scout, a general manager, assistant coach, a head coach, uh, an announcer, I guess, broadcaster, whatever, that I need to have them prepared when they're given an opportunity to get in front of somebody with an interview, um, that they have a sound philosophy, they have a plan of action, they know how to execute this or at least present this to the people making the decisions so they can go ahead and get those jobs. You mentioned setting up foundations. I understand that you, well, I understand that you set up the Nick Nurse Foundation and that you launched it pretty much the exact night that the world came to a stop. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that, but I'm more interested in hearing you are putting your money where your mouth is in regard to what you just said. What is the Nick Nurse Foundation all about? Yeah, we did launch on March 11th. We actually found out that night, late that night, that that, uh, Rudy Gobert tested positive and the NBA was shutting down. Um so that's uh, never be forgotten moment, really. Um, but listen, I'm I'm just um, like you said, I'm I'm studying and researching how sports people in general can can have successful foundations and charitable givings and impact their local communities. Wanted to do the same. I have a love. I have obviously have a knowledge of basketball. We'll we'll, we'll have a tract in basketball that we can help kids. Um, improve, get better, and give them opportunities. There'll be a, a track um, in literacy and reading. And then um, probably the biggest track is going to be music. I, I love music. And I love, I think, what it does for people, bringing people together, what it does for young people, self-images. Um, so there'll be a big... I can see your acoustic guitar right over yeah, your yeah. shoulder. I'm, I'm trying to learn how to play. And and um, I think it helps creativity. I, I think it enhances my life. I think, you know, those are things I want to pass on to people. Um, we're going to buy tons of instruments and buy tons of lessons for people that can't afford them and, and start spreading the, the music uh, throughout the city. That's great. Nick, legacies of championship teams don't happen in a vacuum. The way that you defend your championship obviously says something about your, your championship. 
it's been pointed out by many people that this year's Raptors team went exactly as far in the playoffs as Kawhi Leonard's Clippers team went in the Western Conference. What does that say about last year's championship team? How, in your mind, does that affect the legacy of what last year's championship team was all about, despite the fact Kawhi was obviously a very deserving NBA Finals MVP? Well, I, you know, I think um, I always say there's a lot of special players on this team. I mean, listen, Kawhi was the, the finals MVP, deservedly so, and was a big reason that a lot of our guys um, had had confidence. He was a great leader, too. Quiet as, quiet as he was, he was a great leader. But, you know, to me, Kyle Lowry, nobody plays harder ever, anywhere. I can't give the guy a better compliment or a higher compliment. I've never seen anybody play as hard and give as much physically and mentally as one one human being as him. Fred Van Fleet, similar vein. Pascal Siakam, special. Uh, Serge Ibaka, when he gets going and blocking shots and doing the things he can do, we're hard to beat. So there's Gasol and his his IQ. And I mean, there's so many guys. I haven't even mentioned Norman or OG or some of these other guys. I just think that opportunities uh, were created with Kawhi and Danny Levin. Pascal and some of these guys were ready to grow and there was room to grow and uh, was there for them. And they took advantage of it. And the, and the guys play hard, man. That's that's what's most proud. I think I think uh, Raptors fans and Raptors nation should be. They should when they watch us play, they should be proud because the team puts an effort out there. Uh, in the book, you talk about how you were the head coach for the Houston Rockets D League team, which was, as you describe it, sort of a laboratory for tinkering with basketball orthodoxy and we all know that Daryl Morey and Morey Ball has infiltrated across the league and you were sort of at the the front line of basically shooting a lot of threes and very very short twos now I used to be a huge baseball fan I wouldn't say that I really am one anymore and I think in large part that's because what's been proven to work from a statistical point of view is not really an aesthetically beautiful game to my mind I understand why bunts and hit and runs don't make any sense but I felt like it was a lot more interesting of a game to watch I now sometimes feel like when I watch NBA games that I'm just watching guys run up and down the court chucking threes. Do you ever, even if it is the smart way to play, and it certainly seems to be that way, do you feel like we're anywhere near a tipping point where just aesthetically it takes away from the game? And would you favor any rule changes that might tip the balance a little bit back towards post-play and long twos? That's an awesome question. Really is. Thank you. Uh, and, very, and very well uh, compare, comparing it to baseball's uh, is an important point. It's important, right? It's important. Uh, I obviously study, you know, I, I love baseball too and bat and football. And I study a lot of, a lot of other sports and, and watch the trends and, and uh, et cetera. Listen, I think that um, shooting so many threes and totally ignoring the twos is, is been a little bit over simplified way of saying that's what's happening. I try to, we, we try to get to a point of of a certain percentage of a shot we're looking for, right? So, like, you'll, you'll know that Kawhi Leonard was was allowed to shoot sure. a lot of non-paint twos. Well, why is that? Because he made 55% of them. That's that's good enough. <laughs> that's, that's, winning, that's winning basketball. Um, we allow Serge Ibaka to shoot some 17, 18-foot shots. Um, why? Well, because they – almost like the warm-up shots for him they get him going they get him into the flow even though they're maybe a little lower percentage shots than we would ideally like 
they pay off in other areas, rebounding, blocking shots, gets his three-point shot going if he has a couple of easier ones there. So I think there's uh, – I'm not really answering your question very well, but I see it. That's the way I see it as, yeah, I mean, you got to play the percentages. Yeah. The math is there. Um, do will, will the – Longtime fan, I think, still struggles with it. A, a lot of my mentors, older coaches, are writing me every day about this three-point sure. shot just isn't good enough. And and you kind of gotta you kind of gotta say, well, the math says that it is sometimes, but I think there's room within the math to to make it a little bit more of the game we're all used to. So you don't think there's any need to tweak rules, for example, maybe like getting rid of the corner three or whatever to nudge the math. I, I don't think there's a need to. But I would certainly be in favor of experimenting with a lot of little rule changes. I think, again, you know, you talked about my Rio Grande Valley um, days, and we did all kinds of experiments. Like, like you can't believe it. I won't get into them here, but but I think like the D League and the G League is a great place to to look at some of that stuff. Why why not? Even if it's just for a month, or uh, you know, have all the teams, you know, like you say, wipe out the corner three and see what happens, uh, see see how the game changes or extend the three-point line further or whatever. You know, the, the biggest change that's coming, and you've already seen it, is the distance everybody's shooting from. Like, you used to coach, hug the line, you know, because you were closer. These guys are shooting 10, 15 feet behind the line now, kind of in the normal course of play. Some of those shots uh, – Lillard is taking from right, right on the other side. And those are like legit that he's practicing and you might start seeing those more often. I have, I have a feeling I know you're going to be using the whole half court is, is what we're really looking at. Um, yeah. Nick, I have to let you go. I enjoyed your book. It was a little bit more candid than I expected it to be. And, and I appreciate your frankness and in, in talking about your experiences up to and including the NBA. If you think that there is like a life lesson that people can take from your book, even if we are not going to become basketball coaches, what do you think your journey has taught you that the rest of us can learn from? Well, I hope that it's, um, you know, we're all kind of starting out somewhere, right, in our in our professional lives. And I hope that you love each job you have and um, you go into those jobs trying to figure out how you can get better at your craft and keep plugging away. And if you're if you're ever going to get a shot at a at a really big job, hope, hopefully you're ready for it because of that mindset, you know, love the job you have and put everything you have into it as you go and see what happens. Well, it's been exciting to see. We always root for guys like you who come up from the assistant ranks and 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 make it stick. You know, the Van Gundys, the Lawrence Franks of the world. I think because you know the rest of us can relate to you just a tiny little bit more than we can relate to the former superstar turned coach. So, congratulations on your success. The Raptors, uh, we're big fans here in the household. They're my son's favorite team primarily because he likes dinosaurs. But there's Raptor stuff. There's Raptor <laughs> stuff around here. So uh, we'll such we'll a watchable team this past season. I'm sure you will continue to be. Uh, we look forward to seeing you and your team again. In the meantime, your new book, Rapture, 15 teams, four countries, one NBA championship, and how to find a way to win damn near anywhere is available everywhere. Thank you, Nick Nurse. Thanks a lot for having me.